What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? All right, so I've had this fact waiting to use it, and I think today's episode is the right one. So did you know that Nintendo almost came out with a knitting machine? No, no. Was that in its earliest days or like with the Wii? No, no, like in the 1980s when they came out with the original NES system. You remember this. Yeah, yeah. I found this old trade ad for it when they were considering launching it. And and here's how it reads. So it says, now you're knitting with power. (laughs) It's not a game, not a toy, not something a young girl can outgrow in three to six months or even a year. It actually knits sweaters. (laughs) That's so weird. And sexist? Yeah, kind of. I mean, the technology is kind of forward-thinking, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you could fashion your own patterns, yarn it up, and have it knit for you, I guess. I think that's how it works. And the guy who was asked to demonstrate it for Toys R Us called it one of his least genuinely enthusiastic demos, (laughs) and it basically got zero demand. But reading about the Nintendo knitting machine made me wonder, you know, how long has Nintendo been around? And how have they survived for this long in such an incredibly competitive market? And just how much running and swimming is Mario doing in Super Mario Brothers? (laughs) So that's what we're going to find out. Let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hotticketer. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, holding up a paper that says, up, down, up, down, left, right, left, right, be a start. Wow, isn't that the Konami code from Nintendo? Yeah, that's the secret code that gave you all those extra lives in Contra. That is just how thoughtful he is, sharing a top-secret industry code on the air with us. (laughs) That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. So we're talking Nintendo. Now, everybody's familiar with Nintendo and its flagship characters, Mario, Luigi, Zelda, the list goes on. But video games are only half of the company's 128-year history. Actually, less than that. So with the holiday season upon us and the new Nintendo Switch console topping all kinds of hot toy and tech lists, 
we thought it'd be fun to shed some light on the lesser-known history of the world's most recognizable video game maker. The Nintendo you don't know. (laughs) Right. And I'll be the first to admit there is so much I didn't know about Nintendo. For example, did you know the company actually won Emmy back in 2007? I thought Emmys were just TV shows. So how did a video game company wind up with an Emmy? Yeah, so it was actually awarded in recognition of one of Nintendo's most famous tech innovations, the D-pad or the directional pad. Uh-huh. So I'm sure you know this, but the D-pad is the plus sign shaped button that you see on video game controllers nowadays. And Nintendo introduced the new output method back in, I think, 1982. And it quickly became a standard in the industry over the old joysticks. Like, you know, the ones where you had to use your whole hand to move the controller around instead of just a free thumb. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. The D-pad revolutionized gaming, but that doesn't say how they got an Emmy. How did they win an (laughs) Emmy? Well, most video games are played on TVs, so there's one connection there. But the real reason is that the D-pad got utilized by most of the remotes in your house, whether for your DVD player or streaming device or the TV itself. That's pretty crazy. All right. Well, it's clear Nintendo isn't your typical video game company. And as I was saying earlier, Nintendo actually predates video games themselves by almost a 100 years. So I've read a little of this before that Nintendo started out as a playing card manufacturer. And this was back in 1889 when a 29-year-old businessman named Fusajiro Yamachi, he saw the chance to jumpstart this dormant industry. And as you might know, Japan had cut most of its ties with the Western world during the 17th century. It was like this highly protected society, and the royalty didn't want invading cultures to erode the country's values and traditions. But as part of this isolationist stance, there was this ban on all foreign playing cards. And this was to curb the rise in illegal gambling. Hmm. And when the Japanese devised their own card games in the ensuing centuries, those too became used for gambling, and the government banned those as well. Pretty interesting. All right, so it's a, a bit of a game of kind of whack-a-mole now, right? I mean, games pop up, they get extinguished, then they pop up somewhere else, and then they get mm-hmm. extinguished again. Exactly. And so this back-and-forth rise and fall of Japanese card games goes on for more than 250 years. And then in 1886, a new game called Hanafuda and I'm going to mispronounce every single Japanese word of this, but it's finally permitted by the government. And this game loosely translates as flower cards, and they used flowers and animal pictures instead of numbers, so it was a little harder to use for gambling. <laughs> harder, I'm guessing, but but not impossible. Yeah, that's right. So wily gamblers still found ways to make money playing Hanafuda, and I, I mean, the general public isn't that interested in playing card games since it's had such a bad rep for so long. But this new game did catch on quickly among this group of near-do-wells known as the Yakuza. Wait, so is this like an organized crime syndicate? Is it are they, are they the early customers of Nintendo? Were they actually like Japanese gangsters or something? <laughs> sort of. So the term Yakuza actually started as this reference to a losing hand in this game that wasn't worth any points. And since the game was popular mostly with unsavory types, Yakuza became slang for like useless individuals. Huh. And we should do a whole episode on the Yakuza down the road, but at this point, these useless individuals are just kind of outcasts in society, and the wider connection to organized crime, that comes later. But the moniker itself does have a connection to Nintendo, and specifically their Hanafuda cards. Huh. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about how our man Yamachi rises above this shady designation, and and basically it all comes down to design. The cards that the company Nintendo produced included hand-painted images, you know, made from the bark of mulberry trees. Mm -hmm. And because they were so ornate and and super high quality and and frankly just eye-catching, it it actually helped free the cards from that back-alley stigma. And it wasn't long before Nintendo became the top card game company in all of Japan. Absolutely. So over the years and generations, as the government relaxed their rules, Nintendo started releasing new types of cards and card games. 
But it's only in the 1950s when Yamuchi's uh, great-grandson took over the reins that Nintendo started experimenting with some oddball ideas. So what did they do? Well, there are a few smart things. Like, Hiroshi signed this deal to feature Disney characters on the card decks, specifically to market them to children and families. But he also did a few super strange things as well. Like, he dabbled in starting a taxi service and (laughs) a line of instant rice And for a little while, he even invested in love hotels where businessmen could rent rooms by the hour, no questions asked. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Card shark gangsters, seedy motels. I mean, I have to be honest, like, this is not the house Mario built. (laughs) Definitely not. Definitely not yet. And while none of those ventures worked, they all went belly up quickly. Hiroshi knew that playing cards and the playing card market had reached the saturation. So if Nintendo was going to survive into the 1970s, they'd need to branch out. Well, and and also by this point, they were already dabbling in at least board games, right? Mm -hmm, That's right. But toy companies like Tomy and Bandai, like, do you even remember those? Uh, I mean, only vaguely. Yeah, me too. So it's worth Googling Tomy and Bandai games from the 1970s because the titles and photos are amazing. Like, they've got one called The Hamburger Game and Run Yourself Ragged and Nutsy Tennis. Like, they (laughs) (laughs) honestly are so intricate and plastic, but they really look fun. But Nintendo needed an in, and this they needed some sort of new product to catch people's attention and help establish it as, like, a place for fun, not just, like, card and board games. I love those names of those, like, what even is, like, Nutsy Tennis? (laughs) (laughs) Run yourself ragged. (laughs) Well, this is the part of the Nintendo story that I really love because, you know, at first you think, okay, all right, here's where video games come in and the company we know starts to take shape. But no, you know, instead the company's first foray into the untapped toy market, it's this wacky extending arm thing called the Ultra Hand, (laughs) and there's nothing electronic about it. Basically, it's the invention of Gunpei Yokoi. He's this low-level Nintendo factory worker. He's got a little bit of a background in engineering. And it's kind of an innovation on Ben Franklin's long arm grabber, you know, which he he invented in his old age that would help him get books high off of of shelves. Yeah, so Ben Franklin's version was obviously just this long pull with a tiny grabby thing at the end of it, right? Yeah, that's it. But but Gunpei designed a prototype grabber claw that, that, frankly, you'd almost picture kind of like an Inspector Gadget's hands or something. Like it expanded out across the room with sort of a metal crisscross pattern, but it collapses to a tiny shape. And when Hiroshi saw it, he fell in love with the idea and got Gunpei to mass produce a plastic version by the end of that year. And the thing was dubbed the Ultra Hand, as I mentioned, and the toy was a massive success for Nintendo. They sold over a million of them between 1966 and 1970. And with that initial success, Nintendo made the transition to toy manufacture. And and honestly, they never looked back after that. (laughs) So I was just on my phone and I I looked up the box of the Ultra Hand and it is amazing. (laughs) There's like one version that's a cartoon box and it's got two kids happily stealing some sort of money purse from a businessman. That's good marketing. (laughs) And there's this other that's like a real life pick and it's got a boy in the background using this Ultra Hand to like Maybe grab something off a top shelf while this girl in the foreground seems to be, I don't know, passing a tomato across the room to her dad. (laughs) It's amazing. Also, why would you get this for your kid? Like, it only encourages, like, theft and mischief. (laughs) I mean, but it does look kind of fun. Those pictures are ridiculous, though. But, But thankfully, Nintendo brought Gunpei along for the ride as they developed more. And he was promoted from this maintenance engineer to the head of product development and that's where he helped create all these different unusual toys. And, and that includes Nintendo's first feature electronics. And that first one was called the Love Tester. <laughs> so 
I thought we were past the more questionable bits of Nintendo's history. Well, you know, although this was aimed at a slightly older crowd, the love tester was was a whole lot tamer than those pay-by-the-hour hotels you mentioned earlier. <laughs> That's just so disgusting. It was this small device that kind of looked like a voltmeter with two wires sticking out of it, and there was this small silver disc at the end of each wire. And the idea was that a couple would hold hands while each person held one of the discs. And so they had this resulting level of love that would then be displayed on the screen, and it used the scale from zero to 100. <laughs> so, I mean, it's clearly a cute gimmicky item, but what did the love tester actually test? Love, Mango. You don't believe this really worked? <laughs> I mean, it was most likely the electric conductivity of the couple. I don't know. Like, if their palms were sweaty, it would affect it. But, you know, the specifics really didn't matter that much, at least not to the target customers. There's this great site I found as we were doing our research called uh, Before Mario, and it explains that dating culture in Japan during the 1960s was actually still pretty strict. So really, any excuse to hold hands and strike up conversation was was welcome. And that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And so that's why the love tester was such a success. It was a really smart idea for that time. And because it made Nintendo so much money, the company continued to dabble in electronic toys, you know, when video games were just starting to make their debut. Sure. So, I mean, we're talking about the late 70s here when arcades just started to take off. That's right. But, you know, Gunpei is an extraordinary thinker because he actually had his sights set on a different market. So one day while riding a commuter train to work, he noticed this other businessman playing with his calculator just to kind of keep himself busy, I guess. Mm -hmm. And this gave Gunpei the idea for a new line of handheld video games you know, that maybe would use the same LCD screen and that, that display technology that a calculator would use, except... In this case, the graphics would be used to create characters and then maybe objects that could be set against this pre-printed background scene. And so you'd have this built-in controller buttons on either side of the screen that would allow the player to move a character around, you know, to complete basic tasks, I guess. And so one early model of these Nintendo game and watch systems had the player control this deep-sea diver. He just had to go from one side of the screen to the other side of the screen, and he would claim a sunken treasure chest there. And... And all the while, he was avoiding the moving tentacles of this grabby octopus. How captivating <laughs> is this, Mango? I mean, I actually vaguely remember those games as kids and really wanting one, but they were so expensive. And, of course, that actually brings us full circle because it's actually these game and watch systems where the D-pad was used for the first time. Yeah, that's right. Although I just had a memory. Do you remember when we took that computer science 101 class and we had to make a fish tank where mm -hmm. the fish would just go one side to the other? <laughs> we we're basically computer science. Geniuses. That's right. right. <laughs> but back to the D-pad. You know, it was another little master stroke from Gunpei. And he'd run into problems while trying to adapt Nintendo's successful Donkey Kong arcade game for the handheld market. And unlike most handheld games at the time, which only had the player moving left to right, Donkey Kong was pretty different because it had them moving along both the X and the Y axis, which we both understand what that means as computer scientists, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is funny. Like, you run along the platforms, but you also have to climb the ladders and reach the top where Donkey Kong's keeping your kidnapped girlfriend. <laughs> right, right. But I, I went to a pizza place this weekend with my kids in town here, and they had a few old-school NESs set up while you're waiting. And my four-year-old was actually trying to play Donkey Kong, and she had no idea what she was doing. And she was really angry that this ape was, like, tossing barrels at her. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty great. All right, well, here's where I'm going to hand the baton off to you, because it sounds like Gunpei was the guy at the forefront of electronic gaming, but actually someone else came up with the games like Donkey Kong and Mario and Zelda, right? 
Yeah, that's true. So credit for those goes to Shigeru Miyamoto, also known as the father of modern video games. Like his creativity and attention to detail was this massive part of Nintendo's success when it transitioned into home consoles in the 80s. All right. Well, we should definitely talk about what he brought to the table and how it affected the video game industry going forward from there. But before we do that, why don't we take a quick break? This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about how Nintendo made the transition from playing card manufacturer to video game icon. All right, Mango, so Shigeru Miyamoto is the mastermind behind Super Mario Brothers and that whole series and really kind of a gaming legend. But how did he wind up working at Nintendo in the first place? So, I mean, to be honest, there might have been a little nepotism involved because Miyamoto's father was able to line up an interview for him right out of college. Mm -hmm. And he had some connections with Nintendo, but once Miyamoto had his foot in the door, the young designer impressed everyone. Mm. Like, he had all these great toy ideas. And he started out as kind of a staff artist for the company's planning department, and this was in 1977. And he's still with the company today. I mean... That's 40 years since Nintendo hired him, wow. and uh, he's never worked a single day for any other company. It's pretty incredible. That is pretty incredible. And obviously, he's an insane talent, and we'll find out why the company wanted to keep him. But what kind of stuff was he working on in those early days? I mean, he couldn't have come up with Mario right out of the gate, right? Well, I mean, yes and no. So in the early 1980s, Nintendo tried to expand into the North American arcade scene. But one of their earliest efforts, which was this uh, sci-fi shooting game called Radar Scope, it failed to find an audience outside of Japan, so one of Miyamoto's first assignments was to build a new low-cost game using the existing tech and this engine of Radar Scope. And that way, the company could, you know, rejigger and convert the thousands of arcade cabinets they already had into something fresh. And Miyamoto was eager to prove himself. So under the mentorship of Gunpei, he came up with this idea for Donkey Kong. 
Wow, and and you should explain what that has to do with Mario, though. Right, so nothing at first. Originally, the game was going to be based on Popeye the Sailor Man, but when the license for that property fell through, Miyamoto redesigned the game to include original characters. So the brutish villain of Bluto became this gorilla named Donkey Kong. The perpetual damsel in distress, Olive Oil, became a woman named Pauline, and Popeye got turned into this carpenter named Jumpman. And since Jumpman isn't the catchiest of names, today he goes by Mario. And so it's it's the same character? Definitely. So according to the story, the president of Nintendo of America noticed the similarity between the Italian landlord they had, the one they'd been renting warehouse space from, and the mustachioed Jumpman. And the Nintendo crew nicknamed the character Mario in his honor. And by the time the carpenter turned a plumber and was ready for his breakout role into his own series, the nickname had stuck. Oh, that's pretty great. And it actually reminds me of another story about early Nintendo, or at least the video game phase. So apparently Donkey Kong was a big hit for the company, pulling in over $180 million in just a year after its release what? in 1981. That's $180 million then. I mean, that's a lot of money. But with all that success came the attention of Universal Studios, who now believe that the game was infringing on its King Kong copyright. And the studio made some pretty tough demands, insisting that Nintendo destroy all unsold copies of the game and hand over every penny they had made along the way. So, I mean, I'm guessing Nintendo didn't go for any of that. No, not so much. Instead, they lawyered up and proved that not only did the game have nothing to do with the events of the movie, but Universal's copyright had long since expired anyway. (laughs) It actually meant King Kong was now in the public domain. How crazy is that? That's amazing. I wish we had snapped it up. But, uh, (laughs) But that isn't the craziest part, actually. It turns out that Universal had allowed Tiger Electronics to create this game based on King Kong and it was actually kind of a knockoff of Donkey Kong. <laughs> so in the end, the court ruled in Nintendo's favor, and Universal was made to pay the company millions in damage. That's amazing. Yeah, so uh, actually, Nintendo's lawyer, John Kirby, he was given this brand new sailboat as a thank you gift, and of course, he christened it the Donkey Kong. Mm-hmm. But that name may sound familiar, because the best part is he also got a character named after him, and that is the character Kirby. Oh, I love that. I like that not only did he get this new boat, but he also got video game immortality. Yeah, no kidding. So I'm glad you mentioned knockoff games because that speaks to something I don't think a lot of people remember. And that's that America's video game industry was in really bad shape in the early 80s. In fact, it was almost on the verge of total collapse. So companies like Coleco and Atari, they'd made a killing in the early days, but their lack of foresight left them with no way to keep unlicensed games from being designed and released for the systems. So as a result, there were tons of cheap, low-quality software and games out there and frustrated buyers and, and all these parents and kids who were disappointed in the quality of the products. Well, and that had to be a huge headache for Nintendo, right? I mean, they, they released their first home game console in Japan in 1983. So, of course, the next logical step was bringing it to the Western market. But then all of a sudden, the rug gets pulled out from under them, and it starts to look like video games will never make it out of the arcade in the U.S. Exactly. But the company couldn't afford to let a whole market fall by the wayside, so they came up with this new battle plan. So first, Nintendo developed a lockout chip to prevent companies from releasing unauthorized games. And then they redesigned the system itself to avoid any bad connotations that, you know, home video game systems might have developed among consumers. Wait, but so how do you make a video game system not look like a video game system? By making it look more like a VCR, apparently. Oh, okay. Yeah, so in Japan, Nintendo's first system was known as the Famicom, or Family Computer, and it loaded from the top. 
So the games were inserted vertically the way, you know, you'd put a game in an old Atari. Yeah. But for the U.S. release, the system was given this, like, flip-up panel where cartridges would be inserted like a VHS tape. That's pretty interesting. Actually, it reminds me this is kind of unrelated, but it's a little bit like how Subway realized if you compared their sandwiches to other sandwiches, you've got this mediocre proposition. But when you compare a sandwich to other fast foods, suddenly it seems like, you know, this healthy idea. Exactly. So they reframed this as modern family entertainment. And it was also renamed as the Nintendo Entertainment System or the NES to further obscure its role as a piece of gaming hardware. And then they played with the color scheme. So instead of being like bright red and white like the Japanese version was, they muted it down to this two-tone gray color scheme. So the strategy for the U.S. was to kind of make it duller? (laughs) Did that end up working? (laughs) Yeah, it did. But consumers were only part of the hurdle. Like Nintendo also had to deal with retailers. And when it was time to launch the NES in 1985, most stores were hesitant to devote any shelf space to another, you know, slow-selling video game system. Mm -hmm. So to solve that problem... Nintendo came up with this robotic accessory that they uh, dubbed Rob. Uh, It was the robotic operating buddy. Mm -hmm. And when the marketing push for the NES began, Rob the robot was front and center, helping to assure parents and store owners that the NES was this worthy investment. I mean, it's kind of funny to think that this physical toy robot being a selling point for a video game. I mean, it's just the opposite. Now, most kids would pick an iPad over an action figure any day, I would think. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. And Honestly, Rob was never a hot item. Like, the robot was this last-minute addition solely designed to move units, so its interaction with the system was limited to a few weak titles that, you know, hardly anyone remembers today. But none of that really mattered. Like, Rob was basically this Trojan horse. It was a way of sneaking a quality video game system into American society without much notice. Hmm. And once he was there, people were able to play, like, Super Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt and Kid Icarus or whatever. At that point, like, nobody was complaining. And, in fact, the ruse worked so well that by 1988, over 6 million NES consoles and more than 33 million games had been sold in the U.S. And the systems weren't cheap either. Wow, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, when you're talking about Duck Hunt and these additions to the games, I remember playing that game and just how close the gun would be to the TV screen. Like, it was basically touching the screen. It was <laughs> cheating, but it felt good, you know, to win. That was the, That's the most experience I've had with hunting, but I was pretty good. And winning. That's right. And winning. <laughs> yes. Ouch. But it, this was definitely some smart strategy. And I guess robots were super popular back then. I mean, that's right around the time when, you know, Transformers and Voltron and Short Circuit were popular. Short Circuit 2. Short Circuit 2 was so good. But, you know, I do like how the story kind of shows Nintendo drawing on its experience as a toy company, you know, because I actually think there's a case to be made for still thinking of Nintendo as a toy maker first rather than maybe as a video game company. Well, I mean, I think that's an interesting line of thinking, and I definitely want to hear more about what you want to say about that. But uh, why don't we take a little break first? Okay, Mango, it's quiz time. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess we're not the ones that really have to be ready. We're going <laughs> to we're gonna play a quiz because we're talking Nintendo today, and we decided to bring on one of our friends from here at How Stuff Works, also the producer of the always brilliant tech stuff, Ramsey Yunt. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. Glad to be here. All right. Are you nervous about this quiz? Very nervous. Okay. <laughs> now, but before we do the quiz, you are a big 
video game fan. So, so what's your go-to console and video game? Uh, now it is uh, actually a PlayStation Four. Okay. Um, but I grew up playing pretty much most of the consoles. I still have my Atari Twenty Six Hundred console that still works. Nice. And a collection of games for that, but it's definitely not attached to a television because it's a process. Okay. <laughs> but, you, but you had an original Nintendo as well. Yes. Yes, okay. I did. All right. Well, yeah. that qualifies you to play this game, right? Okay. Is that right? Yeah, so, that's right. So, Mango, what game are we playing with Ramsey today? It's called Real Unpopular. Popular Nintendo game or something we just made up. Okay, you ready? Okay. I'll try my best. <laughs> so we're going to give you the name of a game and a, and a quick description, and you just have to tell if it's real or if it's something that we made up. And some of them are Nintendo games, some of them are Super Nintendo games. That's oh, yeah. Oh. Before we get hate mail. <laughs> I <Yeah>. know. <laughs> All right. Question number one: Baby Boomer, and here's the description: A game where a baby escapes his crib. And you have to use the duck hunt gun to shoot birds, cobras, and other annoyances out of the way. Is this a real game or something we made up? I'm going to say it is a real game. Yeah, it's a real game. Just like real life where you use a gun to shoot things out of your baby's way. I forgot that was your style. Okay. (laughs) Number two, TV tag the game. And here's the description. This trivia slash skill game was set in a retirement community where you wheeled around your grandfather in a game of TV tag. Whenever you got tagged, you answered TV trivia to unfreeze yourself with the occasional help of your doddering grandfather. Is this real or something we made up? I'm going to say that is something you made up. <laughs> it sounds real, though, right? It's, it sounds like, yeah. It sounds as real as shooting the things in the way of your baby. Yeah. I want to play this game. Yeah, I do. I kind of want to play grandpa. <laughs> All right. Number three. Oh, this is good. All right. Bill Lambeer's Combat Basket. Mango, as, as <laughs> L.A. Lakers fans, as kids, like, we couldn't stand I Bill Lambeer. Bill Lambeer. <laughs> okay. Bill Lambeer's Combat Basketball, and here's the description. This game is set in a dystopian future where the Pistons player runs an ultraviolet b-ball league where players use armor, mines, and spinning blades to get to the hoop. Is this real or something we made up? I'm going to say yes. I think I remember seeing some really? battle-style yeah. <laughs> basketball game, like you could pick weapons and then go out and play basketball. So is this real, Mango? It is real. Yeah. I'm going to say yeah. It's curious why this wasn't a big seller, but it might have something to do with the fact that Bill Lambeer was the star <laughs> of it. <laughs> Man, I couldn't stand Bill Lambeer. Number four, he is, uh, what, three out of three? Is mm-hmm. Ramsey three out of three? three okay, got three. two left. Stuart the Goat Herder. And the description. In this game, Stuart, the terrible goat herder, tries to prove his family wrong by herding a flock of goats through increasingly difficult challenges, from walking them one by one across a river to trying to use various skills to lure them away from a Peebo Bryson concert. Is this real or something we made up? This sounds like the worst game ever. I'm going to say it's something you made up because I'm hoping no one made that game. Oh, man. It is something yes. we made up. Okay, All good. right. Last one. you got to get this for the big prize, okay? All right. Number five. Home Improvement Power Tool Pursuit. And the description. In this Super NES game, you shoot dinosaurs and mummies with a nail gun while trying to get through a giant TV studio. Is this real or something we made up? I mean, if Tim Allen's name was attached to it, I imagine it would, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's a real game. No way. Is this really yeah, a game? Yeah, and the confusing game came with no instructions because real men don't need instructions. Are you serious? <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> oh, my gosh. And this is a so super was, NES game. Was it based off the TV show? Or I was, mean, ish. Yeah, yeah ish. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so Ramsey went, what, five for five, right? Mm-hmm. 
So what does that entitle him to? So Ramsey's going to get a part-time genius, official certificate of genius, and we'll be delivering it along with a hearty congratulations. Congratulations. Sounds great. Thank you, guys. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of 1 carat plus and receive a free natural 1 carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay, well, so clue me in. Why should we think of Nintendo as a toy company instead of a video game company? And if we do, why is that a good thing? Well, the second part depends on who you ask. So the gaming industry has gone through major changes since Nintendo's heyday in the 80s and the early 90s. And adult gamers make up a much larger portion of the market than they once did. And both the types of games being made and the gaming culture as a whole have changed really to reflect that new demographic. So, for example, a gamer in their early 20s who mostly plays these realistic and third-person shooter games like Call of Duty, they might not think that Nintendo being a toy company is such a positive thing. Yeah, that's one thing I noticed a lot while researching. Like, the other big names in video games, I'm talking about like Microsoft and Sony, they're largely known for their computing power. And that makes them really intense, immersive gaming experiences. But Nintendo is seen as almost like this quirkier, more playful, almost this underpowered option. Yeah, and the interesting thing to me is that the difference you're noting is completely intentional. You know, Thanks to the video game bust in the mid-80s, Nintendo had a clear playing field when they arrived on the scene. But when Sega began releasing their own rival consoles, soon to be followed by Sony and then Microsoft, Nintendo quickly found itself locked into a graphical arms race, really. Sure. So this is when the so-called console wars were raging, and each company tried to outdo the other with a faster, more powerful hardware that promised to, like, redefine gaming. Mm -hmm. And after the Game Boy, you saw things like the Super Nintendo, the N64, more buttons on the controllers, more immersive graphics. I mean, it seems like Nintendo kept pace for a while, but in the end, it was just like a battle they couldn't win. Well, I mean, that's kind of the thing. I don't think Nintendo lost so much as it just 
bowed out. I mean, it's almost like the company woke up one day and remembered that it would just much rather be playing games than fighting wars. So what prompted that epiphany? Well, the company was forced to face some harsh truths back in the early 2000s. Its latest console was the GameCube, if you remember. (laughs) I had forgotten about the Cube. I mean, why were cubes so popular? Like, Apple came out with the cube computer too, right? (laughs) Just the shape I guess nobody would ever recognized before. (laughs) I really have no idea. But the Nintendo's GameCube definitely underperformed. I mean, it had to compete with Sony's PlayStation 2 and Microsoft's Xbox. And it was during this time that new leadership came to Nintendo in the form of Satoru Iwata. And he was the first Nintendo president who actually wasn't a member of the founding Yamachi family. So Awada shook things up by placing the focus on software rather than hardware. Instead of building the most powerful console they could and then working backwards to figure out what kind of games would take advantage of that power, Awada encouraged designers to think up fun and unique game concepts first and then create the console to run them, which is just a very different way of thinking about it. Yeah. So that shift in perspective led to brand new toys and to the way video games were played. You think about things like the Nintendo DS, which really was built off the Game Boy, but had this dual-touch screen system or maybe the motion-controlled home console, the Nintendo Wii, and then you have the Wii Fit, so several new ideas. Well, I mean, we all know how that worked out for them, right? Like, the Wii was such a smash hit with just about everybody, and I remember seeing all these uh, Wimbledon uh, tournaments at retirement <laughs> homes and, and bowling tournaments, too. It was, it was really built for everybody. Yeah, the Wii made video games accessible to this wider audience and much wider than it had ever been before, and it did so by returning the focus to these simple joys of play. So suddenly you've got families gathering in their living rooms to play video games together, and not just kids, but parents and grandparents, like you mentioned. This is what Iwata described as a blue ocean, which was this new market free of rivals. The idea was that if the offerings were innovative enough, it could spark the interest and enthusiasm of anyone looking to have fun. Yeah, I actually love that. Me too. And apparently there were a lot of people looking to have fun because the Wii became Nintendo's best-selling home console to date. Actually sold over a hundred million units in its lifespan. That's pretty incredible. Okay, so clearly Nintendo went its own way in terms of creative and business models, but how does that make them more of a toy company than a video company? And how do you see the difference? Well, I really think it comes down to the intention behind the product. I mean, when Nintendo changed direction and became a toy company in the sixties and seventies, there was this sense of freedom and discovery to their products and I think that's because they were experimenting. You know, they were dreaming up weird ideas and turning them into silly gadgets that were appealing, not just because they were using the latest and greatest technology, but because they were just fun to play with. Awada helped return the company to that mindset and the one they had when they were just a toy company. Yeah, that's interesting. And it makes sense that a company with that kind of history would have a completely different culture and ethos than other video game giants. I I mean, Sony is really a consumer electronics company first, and it saw video games as a new revenue stream. And Microsoft is this, like, you know, digital PC and electronics company first. And they figured, we already make computers. What's a game console if not a specialized computer? But what's cool is that it sounds like Nintendo is leaning into those differences now. Oh, definitely. So I I found this speech that Miyamoto, and and honestly, we should devote an episode to just Miyamoto because he's such a genius. And how he came up with Mario and Zelda and so many other games over Nintendo's lifespan is definitely worth exploring. But back to the talk, he was giving a talk to a group of investors a few years back, and there's one that really shows how the company is playing to its strengths. So he said, Nintendo is known as a video game company. 
but in fact, it's also a toy company. Toys make consumers feel a sense of wonder. When it comes to video game hardware, companies tend to take the similar and rather unified course of aiming to beef up the machine's functionalities. In our efforts to differentiate our hardware from others, I believe it's important that users experience that feeling that they have played with a new toy. Hmm. Well, speaking of that sense of wonder that comes from a new toy, have you heard about the secret tribute to Iwata that Nintendo hid in its new console? In the Switch? Or or what is it? Yeah, so unfortunately, the man who helped Nintendo return to its roots passed away in 2015. He had uh, complications from a tumor, but... uh, It was especially tough because Iwata helped shepherd the new Switch console through its development, and suddenly the company was faced with this grim prospect of launching it without him. But earlier this year, it was discovered that the Nintendo team had actually done something a little sneaky. They secretly embedded this digital copy of an old NES golf game within the firmware of every Switch console. (laughs) And the only way to access the game is by holding a controller in each hand and replicating a signature hand gesture that Iwata used to use in his promotional videos for the company. Oh, that's pretty sweet. And and a little bit odd, I guess. (laughs) Why did they choose a golf game? Well, the NES Golf was one of the first games Iwata programmed for Nintendo, so it kind of held a special significance. And more broadly, it's possible the game was meant as this uh, Omamori, which is, uh, it's kind of like the special charm that's traditionally left at Japanese shrines to offer protection to departed spirits. Hmm. So as one gamer put it, Nintendo embedded Iwata's game kind of to watch over every unit. Are you trying to make me tear up over a video game? This is rough. <laughs> but it really does go back to what we've been saying about Nintendo, right? It's not your typical company. It's got this long and weird and complicated history. And the childlike approach to game design that it's adopted has made sure of that. And the result of it is that you end up, whether you call them toys or video games, Nintendo products have a level of sincerity and heart that separates them from everything else. Well, I don't know about you, but all this talk of gaming has made me feel kind of competitive, honestly. (laughs) So what do you say we go head-to-head in a little two-player fact-off? I'm in. Okay, well, for all the talk of Nintendo's sweetness and sincerity, they didn't always abandon their gambling or Yakuza roots. So did you know that in 1991, they tried to bring online gambling into homes? According to Kotaku, they teamed up with the state of Minnesota to create this gaming system and a cartridge that you could spend $10 a month for this subscription gambling service. (laughs) They sort of gamified the lottery with the system. But Nintendo quickly realized that maybe creating this gambling game that kids might access, it it wasn't a great idea for their brand. And (laughs) they decided to kill the project before political and religious groups could could voice their opinions about it. That's pretty wild. Did you know that uh, Shigeru Miyamoto is considered so valuable to the company that it's in his contract that he's not allowed to bike to work? (laughs) I mean, the 60-something designer used to love biking, but as Business Insider put it, the company's too afraid he might go the way of Frogger. (laughs) (laughs) I did not know that. Well, do you know that Nintendo used to own the Seattle Mariners? Apparently, Nintendo's Japanese CEO didn't really care about baseball, but when the team was going to move to St. Petersburg, Florida, Yamochi decided to buy the team as a goodwill gesture to the city of Seattle. Nintendo's American operation is located not far from there in the city of Redmond. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of amazing. And it was apparently super controversial at the time because people were worried about a foreign entity owning an American baseball team, which is crazy. Yeah, it is. Did you know the original Super Mario Brothers was all drawn on graph paper? (laughs) And it was all colored in. And when the designers were happy with a certain level, 
that's when they'd send it off to code. Eventually, the team started using this internal software to design the games, but their tool became so fun to play with that that's actually what they released to the public as Super Mario Maker. Well, speaking of Mario, our pal Nick Green figured this out, and I love this so much. So he wanted to figure out how much Mario runs and swims in Super Mario Brothers if you take out all the bonuses and shortcuts. (laughs) And if you run from the start all the way to the castle, he only does about 3.4 miles. And as for the swimming, if you isolate that, he only actually does about seven and a half laps in an Olympic-sized pool. <laughs> I mean, Nick Green's a genius, but I do think he's discounting how many turtles he's jumping over and how much parkour he basically has to do along the way. That's why he's got that six-pack. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Tristan held up the Konami code in the beginning of the show, and I've been waiting to talk about this. It's obviously used in pop culture. I mean, you find it on Archer or The Family Guy as an inside joke, but from time to time, you find it as an Easter egg on various sites. So a while back when you fired up the code into Google Reader, a bunch of cartoon ninjas would pop out onto your screen. I don't know if you remember this. It was (laughs) really fun to watch. And when the code was used on ESPN.com, it would bring up all these sparkly unicorns. (laughs) Basically, it was a unicorn infestation. And whenever you clicked, a new sparkle pony would pop up. Oh, that's pretty great. But the craziest to me was when Newsweek got in on the action. Because if you typed in the code, the lead article was about zombies attacking parts of the East Coast. But it also had these tips for the zombie apocalypse, like aim for their heads. And Newsweek only partially owned the correction. Like a spokesperson said, now we've all had a laugh. We will be removing it. Oh, really? Oh, wait, <laughs> own up to that one. All right. Well, I feel like we can't finish an episode without talking about Nintendo Power. You know, the magazine mm-hmm. and all the tips about games and hyped up the new games and I know we were both subscribers at one point, but <laughs> they also published high scores. And apparently Steve Wozniak, you know, the co-founder of Apple, mm-hmm. was a huge fan. He used to keep submitting his scores for Tetris month after month. <laughs> and eventually the magazine had to ask him to stop submitting because they couldn't keep printing his name. <laughs> so he finally agreed to it, but not before sending in one last entry. Yvette's Kanzo W, or his name backwards. <laughs> That's pretty great. I mean, that the Waz was like a subscriber to Nintendo Power is just so insane. (laughs) Yeah, you've got to take the crown for that. All right. Well, thank you so much. And thank you guys for listening. That's it for today's episode. If we forgot any of your favorite facts about Nintendo or anything related to video games, feel free to send those to us. We'd love to hear those facts. You can always email us parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com or call our 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS. It is still 24-7, Mango. Is that right? Yes. Okay, that's excellent news. You can also hit us up on (laughs) Facebook or Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who?
Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings.